So our scripture reading this morning uh, is from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 15. I think you find that on page 282 of the Church Bibles. Samuel rebukes Saul. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Even. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets amongst the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. This is one of those passages that, um, that on first starting to prepare it, 
I went, you know, like I've, I've read this passage many times. And so I came to the passage and I noticed that I'd only highlighted one verse in the entire passage. And I thought, oh, this is going to be hard work. <laughs> right. Um, but there's actually a lot of really good stuff that I'll, I'll take you into in a moment. But let's let's pray first. Father, we ask uh, this morning that as we look into your word, that you would help us to do so in a way that where we have open hearts, where we're ready to hear from you, receive from you. Father, I pray that there would be a work of your spirit in this room, applying to hearts and lives um, things from this passage in a way that only you can do. And so use this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we come to 1 Samuel 13, the, the Israelites have high hopes as to what having a king will mean for them. You know, they, they've said before that, that, that they want a king because the king will lead them into battle. And they're willing to pay the high price for having a king. And Saul fits their expectations in that he's a head taller than other men. You know what I mean? Like, he looks the part of a king. And Saul starts off strong. Right? In verse 2, he even sends some people home. That, that must, you know, that's some confidence. <laughs> Um, in verse 3, Jonathan attacks the Philistines, and Saul has it announced throughout the land. This is a call to, to war. So far, this is confident and strong. This is what they expect from a king. And then things start to fall apart, right? And so the, the Philistines come together to fight, and it's clear that the Israelites are outnumbered. In verse 6, Israel's army start hiding um, some, some commentators think that this is a description of guerrilla warfare, if you read in verse 6, which is effective, but in context, it's probably just showing how scared they are, that they're hiding in rocks and all these different places, right? In verse 7, we find that some of them are deserting, um, and we find that the troops are quaking with fear, and in verse 8, the troops start to scatter, Things are falling apart. And by the way, I, I feel bad for Saul here, right? Like, he's, he's under serious pressure. Like, be the conquering leader, the king. And the thing I want to highlight early on here is that sometimes we put our trust in the wrong places. Right? Our strength is not in who we have as prime minister, or the value of the pound, or the stock market, or the housing market. Our strength is not in our jobs, or the money we have in our bank accounts. We're good at putting our trust in the wrong places. And, there's, and so there's something about what we see here with what happens with Israel that we can connect with, okay? Now, there's clearly meant to be a comparison between 1 Samuel 13, where we're at today, and 1 Samuel 7, which we looked at recently. And the comparison in 1 Samuel 7, you'll remember that the Philistines get ready to attack. The Israelites are outnumbered. They have no king. Samuel offers an offering to God, even though it seems like bad timing. And when all seems lost... Israel is like God fights for Israel and it says with loud thunder such that it sends the Philistines running. The victory in chapter 7 is so decisive that it leads to a long time of peace. And that's meant to contrast with what we have here. 
In fact, there's a lot of similarity between the two chapters, except the big difference here is that whereas th that now they have a king and seemingly they don't need God anymore. In fact, the thing that's, that's missing here, they, I mean, they're getting beat at every turn. The thing that's missing here is that throughout the chapter, they're not depending on God in 1 Samuel 13. And there's even a kind of sad bit at the end of the chapter that can be missed where Samuel actually leaves and goes somewhere else. Like he's not even praying for them or interceding for them or speaking from God to them. The Philistines at the end of the chapter have things so strategically locked down that there's not even a blacksmith in Israel. That if they even want to like sharpen their tools for doing farming, they need to go to a blacksmith, a Philistine blacksmith just to do so. And so it ends by saying that only Saul and Jonathan have a sword or spear in the whole Israelite army. Like, they, they not only do they not have the numbers to fight, they don't even have the equipment or the means to do so. And the thing I want you to see here is that their strength is not in having a king, but in God. And in having a king, they looked to the wrong thing for their strength. And it ends up being a weakness. We have lots of things we might look to as our strength, right? You might look to your job or your degrees or your money or your home. All of these things are worthless compared to the strength of God. And if the last few years have taught us anything, it's this. Like concerns over a virus or food supply or war, panicking about running out of toilet paper, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, God is stronger and more stable than anything else. And so, the, yeah, the first thing I want you to see is they put their trust in the wrong place. They put their trust in a, in a king instead of God. Which leads to what happens later on in the passage. Now, now Saul knows, as, as king, he needs to depend on God. And for this situation, he's been given clear instructions... And I hope you noticed it. Been given clear instructions to wait for seven days for Samuel to come and offer an offering to God before they attack. Okay? Clear instructions. And we get this back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, where basically um, Samuel says this, Go down ahead of me into Gilgal. Okay, same place, right? I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but, and notice this bit. It's weird, right? Like it un, seems unnecessary. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Okay? And what, what Saul does is he waits seven days, but Samuel hasn't shown up. And so he offers the offering himself. Big mistake. And as Saul finishes making the offering, at that moment, Samuel arrives. Coincidence? I think not. Do you know what I mean? Like, God's at work here. And then Samuel says this, you have not kept the command the Lord, God, your God, gave you. Now, um, I want you to see something here because what we could do is we could read this story as though surely it wasn't that bad, right? Like what's so significant here? Why why would Samuel, why would the judgment on, on Saul be so serious that his lineage won't be part of the king, like won't be kings? 
Like, why remove him from being king? The big deal in this passage is that, and this is a high value that you see coming up again and again, is that if God tells you to do something, you do it exactly as God said. And it has to do with recognizing the power and authority of God. Now, often we get this the wrong way around, or often these Bible passages that hold this value up, we're shocked by. But often I think this is because we get things the wrong way around. We want to be in control. If God says something, the logical thing in hearing from the creator of the universe is to do what he says and to do it exactly as he says. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament that people find that's generally interesting. The, um, many of us will be familiar with the passage where, and, and perhaps, but if not, I can, I'll mention it now, um, where Moses, he's leading the Israelites through the desert and they need water, right? And so God says, speak to the rock and it will flow with water, which would be pretty cool, right? <laughs> like, speak to a rock and, it's gonna fl- and water is going to flow from the rock enough Enough water for the whole nation of Israel. Like, this is a big deal. And so he speaks to the rock, and exactly that happens. Fast forward a little ways. They need water again. And God says, speak to the rock, and I'll make it flow with water. And this time, Moses decides he'll add a little bit of flourish, right? He takes his staff, and he strikes the rock with his staff. And God says, because you did this, you won't enter the promised land. And our natural response can be, oh, surely it wasn't that bad. Just a little bit of flourish, right? There's a heart thing underneath it that's incredibly important and significant. There's a heart thing where Moses is saying, essentially, I've got the power, or look at me. There's something wrong about what he's doing. And there's something wrong about, instead of just hearing from God and doing, God, doing what God says exactly as he says, that gives him honor. That gives him glory. But instead, Moses strikes the rock. And what, that same sort of thing is what we see in this passage. In that Saul goes, Samuel's not here yet. I'll offer the offering. I'll do it. He's under great pressure and he responds in the way that is just wrong at this moment. Now, to me, this is a little bit like, uh, some of us will be able to identify with this, it's a little bit like a toddler stepping out into a road, right? A parent snatches the child back, and if any of you as parents have ever done this, you probably have an anger that terrifies and confuses the child, right? The child doesn't understand the danger, and the disconnect challenges the child to see what the parent sees, or at least will probably keep them safe until they're able to understand, right? There's something similar here. In Scripture, when God directly speaks, we find a high value on doing exactly as God says. God's wisdom surpasses ours. His power and knowledge are unlimited, When this works right, the results are miraculous. But there are also examples that we find when a person's pride creeps in, when they veer from what God has said. And so Saul doesn't fully obey God, and we see this again as well in chapter 15. 
And in chapter 15, we get an interesting response that I want to mention here. Because in chapter 15, Samuel says to Saul, he says this, chapter 15, verse 22. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And catch this bit. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now let me, I want you to catch that, but I realize it might be a bit confusing. Let me unpack that for a moment. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. See, our sinful human heart would prefer to have a God that we can control. Instead, we're invited to obedience to a God we cannot control. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. With divination, a person can claim to read God's mind without communicating with God. Right? You just need to read some tea leaves or the way the birds fly through the sky or, or how, what the, the shape of some dung that you find on the ground. Like There's all sorts of different ways of divination that Israel were forbidden from doing because it's claiming to read God's mind without communicating with God. Right? We like, we prefer a God we can control. Or then it says, arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. With idolatry, you can put your gods on your mantle place and collect them, ensuring your well-being. Right? Like, we like to be in control instead of surrendering control to God. And what we see in our passage that connects with us, I think, as well, is how for Saul, instead of having this high view of God that leads to obedience, he has a high view of himself and that leads to, to disobedience. And pressure, we find, can reveal the heart. And that's exactly what happens here. And again, this test right in the middle of it. Why wait for seven days? Like, I will surely come down, but you must wait seven days until I come. In the aftermath of Saul's failure, what we find is Saul tries to explain his way out of it. In both, in both 1 Samuel 13 and in 1 Samuel 15. And so, for example, here in 1 Samuel 15, 13, you know, he tries to explain his way out of it as if he tries to pass it off as a good thing. I felt compelled to seek the Lord's favor. The sad thing in this is that Saul doesn't take that moment, that insight, to recognize what's wrong about his own heart and repent. Instead, he tries to explain it off as a good thing. He does the same thing in chapter 15. And the pressure of these situations reveal that the heart of Saul isn't up to the role of king. Do you ever worry that who you are at your worst is who you are? <laughs> Right? Anybody? Do you ever worry that who you are at your worst is who you are? When the pressure's on, when you're hungry, when, you're, when your guard's down. Sometimes we have moments that shine a light on who we are deep down. And the response should cause repentance. The response, it should cause change when we see things we might not like to see. Um, check this out. I've noticed this kind of sense of pressure and and insight into your own heart. Um, 
I've noticed this in customer service situations. Anybody identify with that? Right? And sometimes I find myself taking a horrible tone. And so out of guilt, I thought I'd try a different approach. Right? My rationale was that maybe it would be just as effective if I was nice. So instead of phrases like, who am I speaking to? Or can I speak to your manager? I decided to try to take phrases like, use phrases like, I just have a concern, or I hope you can help, help me with this. You know, instead of an angry tone, taking the tone of a friend, it isn't nearly as effective. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the sort of person I want to be. You see, pressure can reveal the heart and what really matters to us. With Saul, the pressure reveals his ego, his lack of faith, reveals disobedience. He isn't repentant when he sees what he sees there. He doesn't desire change, but digs in and tries to defend himself. When the pressure's on, what really matters? A few years back, there was um, a situation, this was in 2003, um, one of the, down in Florida, it was one of these big golf, golf tournaments. Now, by the way, I don't watch golf. I don't understand people that do. But if you do, go for it. Okay. So loads of people are there to watch this golf tournament. And it comes down, um, Scott Hawk. Uh, it comes down to the point where basically there's only, if he makes it, there's only one shot left and he'll win. And it's a nine-foot shot on the green, and his caddy and him disagree as to how the... It's starting to get darker out, and they disagree as to how the land looks, right? And so he uses his right to postpone that shot until the next day. Can you imagine, with a whole crowd of people around you, angry, that whole crowd of people that want to see the finish of the match, whole crowd of people that won't be able to make it necessarily the next morning. He holds off to the next morning. Turns out his caddy was right, not him. He makes the shot and wins $900,000, okay? Now, of course, Bad example in that for him, what really mattered was money, right? And that's not necessarily what really matters. But the, the thing I'd want to say to us is what really matters when the pressure's on? What are we really living for? Saul had a heart that would cover disobedience with lies. Fast forward in the history of Israel and we find this leads to Saul trying to kill David in many attempts as he comes to know that David's going to take his place. Go further and we find him in a witch's house using divination trying to call up Samuel from the dead. And we'll find him eventually committing suicide on the battlefield. Clearly Saul's heart wasn't what it should be. But of course, the challenge for us is to have hearts that are right, hearts that honor God, hearts that respond to God, that we can learn from his mistake, learn from and be the people God wants us to be. Your strength is not in the king, but in God. There might be wrong places where you're putting your confidence. Our confidence is in God. 
when God says something, we do it. And we do exactly what God says. Even if we don't understand at the time, like a toddler in the road. And pressure might reveal what's in your heart, might reveal what's there deep down. When those times come, see it as an opportunity for change and a time to repent. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that when, even when we're surrounded by many voices telling us the wrong thing, that you'd help us to live for you, to honor you. Father, apply this to hearts by your spirit in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.